The Joan and Bill Hanks Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage at Loyola University Chicago is proud to support Jesuitical. Hanks Center events for this fall include the Poets of Presence Conference, featuring renowned poet Christian Wyman, a dialogue with the Sant'Egidio founder, Dr. Marco Impagliazzo, and their annual Tehard lecture given by Father Patty Gilger. For the full lineup and information about upcoming events, please visit www.luc.edu ccih. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from American Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church in our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Thrilled to be with you this week more than ever because we're in Rome, Ashley. Yes, we are in our Rome studio, which is a glorified apartment, but our producer did a great job setting this up. So we're so excited to bring you news from the Synod this month. Absolutely. We are joined by a very, very special guest today. This has been a long time coming. We're thrilled to be with our colleague and friend, Gerard O'Connell. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Rome, uh, Zach and uh, Ashley. I'm very happy to be with you. Very happy to talk to your audience. I usually speak to a different kind of audience. (laughs) Well, it's got to be good for you because you're usually holding down the Rome Bureau by yourself and you've got an army practically coming to support you. Yes. As I said yesterday, I was like the Lone Ranger. And today I have got all my group with me. Welcome. Thank you. And we are also joined by our producer, Sebastian Gomes. So welcome to Jesuitical. I can't see you over the pile of cables on the table. (laughs) (laughs) You've done a very good job setting this like apartment up to give us some studio-esque quality. Miracles happen in Rome. That's That's right. That's what we're pulling off today. That's right. So we are thrilled to be here. We've got a great show coming up for you. Isn't that right, Ashley? Yes. So we asked you, our listeners, to give us questions that we can bring to Jerry about the Synod. No question is too small or silly. We're still getting our heads around it. So we're hoping with Jerry, an expert who has been to every synod since 1985, we can get some clarity. 1985. That's incredible. Yes, it's a long time. (laughs) But I've seen nothing like what is happening now. We've had, I think, 30 synods since Paul VI set up the whole synod at the request of the Second Vatican Council in 1965. And now we're almost 60 years on almost. And Francis has transformed it. And yesterday when we were watching in the Synod Hall, we see 35 tables with 12 people around each table. And at one of the tables, the Pope, not up in a dais, right down the same level as everybody Sitting else. Sitting at a table like everyone else. He was yeah. slightly higher than there, everybody else. There was just else. a just little. In case you forgot maybe that like the Pope it, is the Pope. Yeah, it was maybe just like a slight riser. Six yeah. All right, so. so stick around for all of that. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. But first, we have a few words from our sponsor this week. Jesuitical is supported by Saints for Sinners, who offers hundreds of saint medallions, all beautifully hand-painted in New Orleans. Each medal is unique, and there's a saint for everyone, and anyone, for animal lovers, for musicians, for mothers, for daughters, those special in our lives. These saint medals are all wearable and make great gifts for any occasion. Yeah, the saints offer guidance, perspective, comfort, and most of all, hope. These one-of-a-kind hand-painted saint medals are tiny tokens of that hope. Who's your favorite saint? 
Take the quiz and find your favorite saint at saintsforsinners.com. Imported from Italy, hand-painted in New Orleans. Visit saintforsinners.com and take the quiz. All right, before we dive into the listener questions about the Synod, we want to get to know you a bit, Jerry. As we mentioned before, this is hard to believe, but you've never been on Jesuitical, so our listener might not know just how much you know about the Vatican and the Synod and Pope Francis. So can you give us a little bit of background? How long have you been covering the Vatican from Rome? Well, I started in 1985. I wasn't a journalist, and I was asked to write on the Synod following the publication by Cardinal Ratzinger of his book, Crisis of Faith, which was really a kind of a watershed moment at that time, 20 years after the Second Vatican Council. And then uh, some years later, I was asked to write more articles and more articles, and eventually I started writing for the tablet in London. And then I was asked by the major Catholic news agency in Asia to write for them. So I wrote for them for more than 10 years, and I got to know the church leadership in Asia, and I got to know the church in the different countries of Asia. And then, of course, I traveled with John Paul II on his foreign travels. I traveled with Benedict, and of course with Francis. John Paul I didn't travel anywhere. No, he didn't have a lot of time to travel. Yeah, he, he went to the farthest distance. <laughs> and then I started working also with La Stampa newspaper, with the Vatican Insider, with Andrea Tornielli, who's now senior editor in the Vatican Media. And he asked me to be the person working for the English section of it. So that was a fascinating time. And of course, we covered the synods, but also the conclaves. Mm. And I remember we covered the conclave of 2005, but certainly the 2013 conclave of Francis. Which you have written a book on, so you know all about that one. Yeah, yeah, I, I wrote a book on that, and that was fascinating. It took me seven years to write. I checked and checked, and I, I think it's a book for history. It's called uh, The Election of Pope Francis, an Inside Account of the Conclave that Changed History. And I think now we're seeing that it's a good title. This is fascinating. I have to ask this because you have this dynamic where it takes time to write a book like that because you have to talk to all these cardinals, these people who know from the inside what actually transpired. At the same time, you have this event that's a conclave that's like under the utmost secrecy. And there's going to be questions that we're going to get to this month talking about the Synod about how secret everything is. But like, how does that dynamic work as a journalist where you're kind of on the ground, you're covering the story? You don't have all the information, but you're getting kind of pieces of it from people who are speaking sometimes off the record, sometimes on the record. Like, how does that whole dynamic work here as a Vatican journalist in how you're having these conversations with people? It's like doing a jigsaw. <laughs> I, I had a great advantage that I knew many of the cardinals who went into the Synod. So personal relationships on are a key. Personal, I found the key here in Rome, really, is that people trust you and you, you don't betray that trust. It's easy to go for a scoop and have a big flash story, and that will get a lot of clicks, of course, in the era of the dictatorship of clicks. Zach doesn't care about that. <laughs> I love clicks. But I found that does not pay, and I have always respected confidences, and I know a lot more than I can write, and I think the same is true of many of the journalists here, but that they trust you, that the cardinals trust you, and then they will talk. And then I found that despite, as you say, Sebastian, this 
maximum secrecy over what happens in the conclave. There are some people who want the story to come out hmm. for history. Hmm. And I think the book that I produced, I have now confirmation from many, many cardinals, you hit the nail on the head. Hmm. Wow. And I got the voting totals. And I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that's really supposed to be like under the what's called the pontifical secret, right? Absolutely. I, yeah, that's I mean, like the maximum yeah. pontifical secret. Like yeah. when they lock you in the Sistine Chapel and, and you're you staring the at Pope. Michelangelo's last judgment, reminding <laughs> that you, if, you know, yeah. don't do well, you might be going to hell. I mean, that's incredible. You got people to share those stories. Well, it is. And I've been asked, uh, you know, did you not have any qualms about it? I, I said, I was given the information and they knew I would publish it. And in fact, we're happy that the story would come out because this is the first pope outside Europe and North Africa. And this was a seismic moment in the Catholic Church, in the history of the Catholic Church. And people wanted it to be known how it happened. And I got amazing details. But of course, as you know, Sebastian interviewed me for another media, That's Salt right. and Light, Back on the eve of the conclave. And he asked, uh, what did I think it would go? And I said, I think they would be ready to cross the Atlantic. I didn't say You who. didn't say who, but I saw a twinkle in your eye. And, <laughs> and I thought maybe Bergoglio was... The night they went into conclave, I was pretty certain that he would come out Pope. Wow. And so you've been covering Pope Francis for 10 years with America, I think, for most of yes. that papacy. We're at kind of this watershed moment in Francis's papacy with the Synod on Synodality. We have a ton of questions from our audience about that, because I think you've talked about how important it is, but it is a little bit difficult for some people to wrap their heads around. So we do have some questions from our audience that we would love to get to. Yes, but because this is Jesuitical, we want to First, ask you about your drinking preferences. <laughs> Jill Rice wrote in on Instagram. She wants to know what is Jerry's favorite synodal wine. So any wine, really, but a wine that you would walk with, perhaps. <laughs> well, I like the Rosso di Montalcino, oh, and yeah. I like Falangino, which is a white wine. I, I, I like white wines a lot. All right, well, we have a month here, so we'll have time to sample we'll all of your yeah. favorites. <laughs> all right, so let's just dive right into it. After that. M.M. Tran asked on Instagram, what's prompting this particular synod? We've had lots of synods in the past. What is really behind Francis calling the synod on synodality? Well, this is Francis's fourth synod. And he also, before he was pope, when he was archbishop of Buenos Aires, he attended a few synods. And he saw the system was a little fossilized. People were coming, they would read speeches the first two weeks, and then they would work on a final document, they would work in groups. But the script was almost written before he came. And he told yesterday, you listened to him, he said the Secretary General of the Synod, Belgian Cardinal Jan Scotte, a missionary, he came to him and he said, well, what are you writing? And he said, I'm putting this in. He said, oh, no, no, you have to eliminate that. And I know... For example, I, I was witness that the Jesuit cardinal of Jakarta, who was giving a homily at the opening mass of the synod, he was asked by the secretary general, the same one, could I see your homily? And he was told, remove that line from the homily. So it was a very controlled. Jeez. And those <laughs> who today say this synod has been manipulated and instrumentalized, have little knowledge of really what preceded. This is the most open synod that we've had. So before Francis and you know going back decades, 
is rubber stamp Congress a little bit an accurate descriptor where you just kind of go and everybody already knows what's going to be said? Yes, it was a very carefully controlled synod from the top. It was a consultation and they wanted to hear and people spoke their minds. But what came out at the end was very carefully controlled. And there were many taboo subjects that couldn't be discussed. Francis, when he started the synod, he said, you know, speak boldly with parousia, this Greek word, speak boldly, speak from what's in your heart, and don't be worried. He's made very clear, you know, don't worry what the Pope likes it or not, you say what you think. And this was really, it's been the hallmark of all the sinners that Francis has done. And it has changed the climate. I've had people here, bishops, who are now at this synod, who said, you know, I was at previous synods and sometimes I felt like packing my bag and going home. Hmm. Now I feel encouraged to stay. Francis said yesterday, you know, a word to us in the media, he said, past synods were, for example, the one on the family, it was reduced to one topic, communion to the divorced and remarried. He said, the synod on Amazon was reduced to one topic, ordained mature married men. He said, this is not the way to give information. In fact, I totally agree with him. This was absolute reductionism in terms of synods. And Francis wants a more complete picture of this. And it is not around single issues. I think we should say this from the start because the tendency, of course, everybody likes to write a story, we too, (laughs) with, you know, a key idea. But this is a much broader thing. This is who are we as church in the 21st century? How are we to relate with each other? Bishops, priests, religious, lay people. How are we to relate to each other? How are we to work to each other? How are those in positions of authority to exercise authority? But the underlying word is that everybody has a responsibility. That's a perfect transition for our next question from Adriana blanco Gauche. You've talked about how different this synod is from previous synods, but I'm curious, how important is it? And so she asks, is this Vatican II level of importance in the life of the church? It's the implementation of Vatican II. I wrote a story last night, and you edited, which said, you know, the synod is not Vatican III. Francis has said very clearly, we're not ripe yet, we're not mature. He said it takes about a hundred years, and this is the historical historians say this, to implement the council. And the synod was one of the first fruits of the Second Vatican Council. The idea of like calling synods was not this particular one. The synod structure, the synod as an instrument. And because the council fathers, and there was almost 3,000 of them from different parts of the world, said this has been a great experience from 1962 to 65. It's been a great experience. And so we should somehow continue this. And they realized that the Catholic Church in the first thousand years of its history had synods, and they sometimes called a council synods, and they had local synods. It was part of the life of the church. But in the second millennium, from the year about 1100, the synod dropped out and the papacy became the more central aspect of the church. So we arrived at the First Vatican Council, mid-1800s, and the real strong focus on the papacy centralized. And then the next hundred years up to the Second Vatican Council, there was a real centralization of power around the papacy in reaction to the politics of the states in Europe. The Second Vatican Council changed that because it kind of rebalanced 
the relation of the Pope with the bishops. So the bishops at the Second Vatican Council said, we want something to continue. And so they set up the synod. And now, after 50, 60 years, Francis is reinforcing the synod, building on what the Second Vatican Council was, implementing it, and connecting with the first thousand years of the church mm. in a much bigger way than we have done. Mm. Traditionally, it's been a synod of bishops, and bishops have been the primary participants. And this is kind of the first time where we've seen lay people, women invited, and also given voting rights. So that leads me to Kathleen Majera's question. She wants to know, who and why folks were invited to the Synod? She mentions that our colleague, Father James Martin, is there. How were people picked to participate in this? Well, the picks have been made in different ways. First of all, the bishops' conferences in the different countries, and there are more than 100 of them, voted their delegates, bishops. Then, of course, in the preparation for this Synod, which has no precedent in terms of the scope of involvement of lay people, of religious, of non-bishops throughout the world, the church in different countries. There were three stages. The first stage was the local level, then there was the continental level, and now this is the next third stage. But at the continental level, the local churches chose some local people, then the leadership of the continent, then chose some of these and proposed the names to the Pope. And the Pope made the final decision. He also brought in some bishops who were not appointed by the Bishops' Conference to try and balance. As you saw in the United States, they chose a slate of bishops for the Synod who were known to be not exactly on the page of Francis. And so Francis put in other people in the United States. On the other hand, in Germany, the German bishops throws very pro-Francis people on. And so Francis balanced A little it. too pro-Francis, I would say. <laughs> yeah. And Francis chose some other German bishops to balance it. He mm. wants this synod to reflect the different voices in the church. I'm curious, how successful do you think he has been? Because I know in the U.S., you know, this was the widest consultation of Catholics ever, but like 1% of the Catholics in the U.S. participated in their local synod. So I don't know. I feel like some people might be like, is this really reflective of the global church if participation was actually pretty small? I think they said, was it 500,000 people participate in the United States? Well, you, you get a gathering in the United States of any kind with 500,000 people, you've got a big thing. And it has been the most extraordinary consultation that has happened in the history of the Catholic Church and indeed in the history of any religion in the world. And I think our listeners, your good friends who tune in to you, should really be aware that this is something unique in the history of religion and in the history of the church. Experience the transformative power of sacred scripture. Join Dr. Mary Healy, a leading expert and world-renowned biblical scholar, in a college-level online course, Introduction to Sacred Scripture. In this online course through Sacred Heart Major Seminary, Dr. Healy will guide you to uncover the interconnectedness of biblical texts, from Genesis to Revelation. You'll discover how God speaks to you personally, revealing profound truths and unexpected messages. This course is for individuals who crave intellectual knowledge, but also possess a desire to know God intimately. Enroll today.
visit shms.edu slash online. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A couple of people asked about lay involvement in general. It was interesting as I was in the Synod Hall yesterday looking at the tables. On the one hand, it's this watershed moment to have women there and lay people there. But when you see it sort of like shake out at all the tables, what it looks like is there's 10 men and typically one or two women at each table. So it feels like even though there's, you know, been progress made towards some kind of gender equality, it still feels a little bit imbalanced. Can you venture any kind of prediction as to what the future of lay involvement has looked like? That, that was a specific question from Sean McElwee. Well, it's a very interesting question because what we have seen in Amazon, following the Amazon Synod, you know, every country has a bishop's conference. Now what they have set up in the Amazonian regions, which is nine countries, they have set up what is called the Ecclesial Conference of the Amazon region, where you have bishops, lay people, religious, all in one body. And I asked Cardinal Barreto, who is from Peru and who's one of the, I think he's president of the conference now, is this really something that's going to supersede the bishops' conferences in the different country? And he said it could. So it could be the tomorrow of the church. What would you say to someone who, you know, looks at Vatican II, they created a synod of bishops. How can you say you're implementing Vatican II if we're looking to get beyond just bishops? Like, is there a certain proportion where, like, we've gone way past what anyone at Vatican II could have envisioned? Well, the critics say this, and this goes back to the whole question of what this synod is about. It is trying to identify, clarify the different roles that are being exercised. The bishops have a one role, layperson has another role, and the bishop's role is to help with the discernment in union with the Pope. And I think this is very important because I remember when I interviewed Cardinal Hollerich, who is now the special rapporteur of the Senate, he said what we're trying to find is a Catholic synodality because whereas the Orthodox and the Protestant churches and the other Christian communities have synods, also the Anglican commune, they have synods. They don't have the primacy of the Pope. And the Catholic synodality has to have this link working with Peter and under Peter, but always Peter. And so in terms of is the synod going beyond the synod, the bishops? In some ways it is, but it is not depriving the bishops of their role, but it is bringing in other people to assist the bishops in the work of discernment. You could draw, I think, to a direct link back to the council about that, right? Because the council 
you know, emphasize the baptism, the common baptism as the foundation for participation in the mission of the church, right? So yes, the and, promotion of lay involvement in the world, like that was like a, a big balloon that Vatican II launched and still needs to be figured out. I think it's very important that when you look at the documents on the church, the Lumen Gentium, the light of the nations, it was a key document about the church. Chapter two is on the people of God. Chapter 3 comes after it, which is on the hierarchy. And what is happening now is we're going back to chapter 2, whereas chapter 3 got a lot of development with the whole idea of the collegiality of the bishops, that the bishops form a college together with the Pope. We're now going back to chapter 2 of Lumen Gentium, which is all the people. Hmm. Let's get into what actually is happening at the Synod. What do the deliberations look like? We had several questions about that. I was there for the sort of opening session. I saw the conference tables. It looks like either a dim sum restaurant or a <laughs> wedding or maybe a corporate retreat in some ways. There's these 12 person banquet tables. What's happening at the Synod? Well, in the past, let's compare it with the past. In the past, the first two weeks, the bishops came from different countries. They had this working document, which they call the Instrumentum Laboris, for those who like Latin. And the bishops would come with a comment on one aspect or another of the working document. And they would read a speech, maybe five minutes, some went much over. This time, they have a working document, but it's in the form of questions, not statements. And the questions have emerged. The document is the fruit of the discussions, the consultation that has taken place in the different continents, in the different countries. In the Synod now, they will be discussing in five sections. They call them modules. The first module is on what is a synodal church? What does being synodal mean for the church? There are three other models then. Communion is how we relate together. And then from that discussion emerged the sense that people wanted to feel they belonged to something. The second question is mission. What is the church for? And the Pope in his homily yesterday was very clear. He says, you know, we're here not for ourselves. We're here because we belong to you and we are to make you known to the world, referring to Jesus. And the third thing is responsibility. How do you exercise your responsibility in the church as a baptized person? And so there are very different roles. And there's the question of how authority is exercised in the church, what different roles a person can. And then the fifth module, the fifth phase of this first session of the Synod, there's another session next October. The fifth one is a kind of a synthesis of what has happened in these four weeks. Most of the work is done in small circles, small groups. There are 35 language groups. 14 are English. So English is the dominant language at the Synod. Each group has a note keeper who is elected by the group, and they have a facilitator. And the facilitator is meant to keep them focused on the question they're meant to discuss and also to keep the time. Yeah, very important role. I feel heard. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Sebastian. Yeah, shout out to you our timekeeper. And so they will be discussing the first module, the first worksheet of the working document. And the question that was put to them yesterday is, you've all, most of you have been through the consultation process. What sticks in your mind most from this consultation process? What came out 
most forcefully, on which there was affirmation, and what came out strongly as questions or contrast. Tensions. Tensions. And so there were questions and tensions, and this is what has come up. Hmm. And then Uh, they're doing something really interesting, which is we've only just seen it, right? Because we, as we're talking here, we've only seen the opening session, which was mostly just talks by the leaders. The Pope spoke, Cardinal Grech spoke, Cardinal Hollerich spoke, just to kind of get the thing going. But we already started to see a few interventions, and then they would like pause, and they would just sit quietly for like a few minutes. And I mean, that's fascinating, because suddenly you're stuck in your own mind and in your own heart with what you just heard. Yes, I think what distinguishes this synod from any of the others I have seen, I might write a piece on this. You heard it here first. Is the prayer that this is a synod where people pray, and the popes made very clear what we're trying to do is listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And what the Spirit is saying to the churches has come through the consultation. People don't think of God as talking in history, but God does talk in history. And that's been the whole history of the Revelation, God's meeting with man. And he's talking in the lives of people, and he's talking in the lives of the local churches. The whole question in the Synod is a question of listening. You have to listen. And praying. There have been 30 Synods since Paul VI set up the Synod. Never has there been such prayer around any synod. It started with a three-day retreat. It started with the ecumenical gathering here in St. Gathering Square, prayer yeah. on the 30th. And then that night, all the members went on retreat, and they came back on the Tuesday night. And then started Wednesday with the opening Mass. And then they started with the opening Mass. And really, I think this is more striking. Each session starts with a Mass in St. Peter's Basilica in the morning, That didn't happen. Even in the Second Vatican Council, people said mass privately back in their own, the places (laughs) they were staying. I mean, that's just crazy to think about that they weren't even celebrating mass together, Vatican II. No, absolutely not. There was an opening mass, which John XXIII gave, and there was a closing mass, and there would have been mass once or twice for big events. But the bishops, two, three thousand of them, they were saying masses, say, up in the North American College, many of them all around single altars also not even celebrating. We haven't realized how much change. I should have put that in my my article yesterday. I didn't. (laughs) We haven't realized how in 60 years there's been a transformation. And now we're in a different world. I mean, we're now doing this broadcast. We're now chatting with all this great technology. And way back in the Second Vatican Council, nothing like this. They were doing filming, yes, and some television, etc., and some radio, but that was it. iPhones, social communication. No Twitter or <laughs> X. Yeah. And so we are in a new world. Speaking of technology, they have, so they sit around these tables, and then there's this like camera that rotates in the center and will give you like a close up of the person who's speaking. So there's a few microphones around the table. You can push like a button for your microphone to turn on, and then the camera goes in your face. And then there's monitors also around at the center of each table. So like you could be sitting anywhere in the hall, but when the person who is speaking is actively speaking, you're presented with a little monitor so you can see them actually. And there's like that simulcast that's happening for translation purposes. So when there's like the large group talking, people around the world are included based on their language abilities. The table 
reflects the really light years distance from the Second Vatican Council. Or the synods up to now. Or any of the synods up to now. And so you have this prayer session, you have this silence. You know, after every three or four people speak in the group, they have moments of silence. Before the group starts work, they have a reading from Scripture, prayer, and then silence. Nothing like this has happened. And Francis believes that he says the protagonist of this synod is the Holy Spirit. But you have to listen. And you have to listen with as open heart as you can to what the other is saying, no matter how different it is or opposing to the view you have. And you have to try and listen, not just what he's saying, to try and go behind his words and see what's in his heart. And each one is supposed to say what's in their heart. It's not a parliament, Francis said. You can be sure it's not a parliament. It's not a, a debating He's starting yeah. to sound like a broken record. <laughs> we get it. We get it. I was struck that like the tables and the technology literally like center the person. Like the person is right in front of you. And that's been one of the key themes of Pope Francis's papacy is like people over ideas. So just seeing that in practice, it gives me... Gives me more hope for this of what can well, come out of it. You know, this really connects with the world that we're living in. It's a world where technology dominates a lot, but also the importance of listening to people because we're in a polarized world. You have it in the United States, but you also have it here in Europe. And we have it in the church. And you have polarization in the church. And the hope, Francis' conviction, is if people follow this process of praying, listening, etc., you'll overcome the polarization. And that is one of the first goals of this synod, to have the catholicity, the universality, the vast variety of different opinions, but in a way, living together, working together, that does not cause conflict and dissension, and one accusing the other of a heretic, as people have done to Francis, but that they realize that we're all sons and daughters of God, members of the one family, members of the one church, and we can work together. And Francis says, if we can do this in the church, then we can contribute to diffusing the polarization in society. I know there will be lots of articles saying that this church is about women ordination, as the Pope said yesterday, or maybe about LGBT integration into the church, or the role of women, or God knows what. The discussion is at a much deeper level. It's going to, who are we? What are we as a church? Where are we going? What is our relation with God and with humanity? Yeah, so we have a question on that. So from L.M. Woodall, they ask, how will we know if the synod is successful? If it's not about these specific questions of women's ordination or LGBT issues, what are they actually voting on? And how will we know if like, they've succeeded in what Pope Francis has set out? I think the, one of the litmus tests of the success of the Synod is if there is conversion among the members of the Synod. Because people have gone in with very different views. There are some people, as Father Timothy Ratcliffe said very rightly, there are some of you there who would prefer not to be here. But the reality is if they can get over the tensions that is already a major, major step in the church. And Francis, in the very first document that he issued, Evangelia Gaudium, the joy of the gospel, which he wrote within four months of being pope, he says there, 
we need conversion in the church. We need conversion in the papacy, but also right down to the bottom parish level (laughs) and to the individuals. Now, I think what he's hoping is that that is what happens, so that those who come in thinking that you have, Ashley, that you have these terrible ideas, which are completely in contrast with mine, will leave the synod feeling, oh, well, she's got some good reason. I got some reason. We can work together. That would be more than single issues. That would be enormous, because then it will be possible to address the single issues at the international and at the local level. I think that's important because I think when people say it's not about single issues or they bring up certain things, it's not that the Pope or someone is saying that they're not important, right? Because they are referenced in the Instrumentum Laboris. They are up for discussion. Those conversations are going to be happening at the Synod. But as you mentioned, Francis, from my view, it seems like he doesn't think we're at a point yet as a church where we can really work on that at a universal level. And so is it correct to say that this is almost like tilling the soil for future work together? Absolutely, Zach. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I had two cups of coffee today, so (laughs) Because if you can't agree how to address a problem, the likelihood that you're going to get a solution, which everybody can buy into, is really minimal. But If you can find a way of working together, recognizing that there are differences, nobody eliminates the differences, or indeed the importance of the issues, the single issues, they are very important. I mean, the importance of finding a way to give greater space to women in the church, to have their role, which is extraordinarily powerful today, recognized and opening up roles of responsibility. Nobody denies it. These are vitally important. But at the root is to get to a way of working together where you can listen, recognize the other has a different position to you, but you recognize she's my sister, I'm her brother, and we can work together. And if he can get over the polarization, which is paralyzing the church, and which is paralyzing the church in the United States, but not only there, we see it in Germany too, and other countries. But if you can get through, break through that internal conflict in the church, internal polarization, this will be an enormous achievement and of benefit to the church for decades and maybe centuries to come. Cardinal Hollerick said something yesterday that's really stuck with me. And he, he sort of named this. He said, you know, we come in with position A or we come in with position B. But the goal is not to like present position A as I see it in order to convert you to position A. The goal is that somehow in the course of the conversation, we arrive at a position C. We arrive at a new position that is beyond a simple black and white cut and dry winner and losers, position A or position B. We come out with a different position than either of us came in with. Yes. That was fascinating. Absolutely. It, the Pope is going for a win-win situation where we recognize we're all children of the same father, we're all brothers and sisters of Jesus, and we all can work together to the unity that Jesus has called us to. And I think it is difficult to explain this in the media, but people understand what polarization is. And people see the need to overcome the polarization. We see it in the politics. 
and you've just seen it in the, uh, the United States Congress. So this is, I think, the first objective in my estimation to overcome the polarization and get a new self-identity for all members of the church. All right, I think we answered pretty much every question, either directly or indirectly, that came in. So thanks, everybody, just on behalf of the team for taking the time to send in your questions. This podcast really works because there's engagement and there's two-way communication. Zach and Ashley do a great job. They got an Instagram account now, so be sure to follow yep. them there. Uh, keep sending your questions, your comments in, because it helps us to think through how do we need to frame this for you to help you digest it, to help accompany you through it. We're going to do our best to do that all month long. It's a co-responsible podcast, <laughs> you could say. There is one more question that we need to put on the table, and that comes from Alucio SJ. What would you guys like to happen at the Synod? What would you like to see or to hear? That is a fantastic question, and we're going to be talking about that on our Patreon feed. So if you are not yet a subscriber to that, you just have to visit patreon.com slash americamedia. We'll give our own kind of personal hopes and fears for the Synod. I got some big issues yes. that I want to take to Pope Francis. Yeah, I, a position B that you were talking about earlier. I'm very, very invested in position B. So again, visit patreon.com slash americamedia to support the show and get all of our content on the Synod on Synodality. But Jerry, before we let you go, we do ask everybody that comes on this podcast one final question, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? We have today one blessed, beatified, in the 14 West African countries. One. We have hundreds every year from Spain, from Italy, from other countries. I think there. I also think, say, for example, in Cambodia, where people really... Mm. I would like to see some from China. There are people who've spent their lives and some died in prison. I don't think the congregation, or the now called Dicastery, means Department for Saints, really is giving enough attention to them. The others have sponsors. They have people who have, have able money. to... money. <laughs> money, and they have kind of people who can study their causes and give time. Colleen actually did a great deep dive on your guys' podcast, Inside the Vatican, on the whole process of making, yeah, absolutely. making saints. But I think we're still in a very Western world when it comes to the canonization of saints. I would like that to change. So it's not an answer to one question. It's a broader one. All right. Well, I think the Church has some kind of tradition of this, of recognizing groups of people where we don't know their whole stories or their individual names necessarily. So, But their witnesses but their witnesses. stood the test of time and yep. inspired people. So the not yet canonized. Well, I was delighted that Pope Francis moved as a category for the recognition, those who work for justice and peace and who are killed in the process. Mm -hmm. That's a whole new world, I think, and it opened as a whole harvest to be reaped still. Yeah. All right. Jerry, thank you so much for taking uh, quite a bit of time to answer these questions. It's been really illuminating for us and hopefully for our listeners too. Well, thank you. And thank you, Zach. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Sebastian. And people, you definitely know this, but if you somehow are living under a rock and do not, you can listen to Jerry every week on Inside the Vatican with our other friend and colleague, Colleen Deli. So subscribe to that wherever you get your podcast. Jerry, thanks so much. Thank you. 
As you already know, Zach, Sebastian, and I are here all month long breaking open the Synod for you on the podcast. And America is doing extensive special coverage on this historic event. So you're going to want to visit americamagazine.org, where you can subscribe and get all of our coverage and commentary, including a special daily Synod diary that's sent right to your inbox. All of us here on the ground in Rome are contributing to this Synod Diary, which offers a more behind-the-scenes personal look at the event and interactions here. You'll definitely want to check it out. So visit americamagazine.org and subscribe today. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our sound engineer this month is Frank Tucson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded this month in the eternal city of Rome. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you soon.